Hey guys, it's Chris. Um, I hope you enjoyed the previous episode or at the very least heard it um, and let it touch your heart because it is a very sad and, and a very challenging subject matter, but it's very important, I believe. After some advisement, we have produced a copy of that episode, but with the N-word removed uh, so that it can be listened to by a broader audience um, because we do believe that this story is very important. So that's what this is. Uh, if you just heard last episode and you have us on autoplay, feel free to give us a skip or bump back a few episodes to one of our greatest hits earlier in the season. Thank you very much and enjoy this uh, altered rendition for a broader audience. The following podcast contains mature content, and the views expressed are not that of the studio or its partners. Welcome, everyone, to Sensorious. I am your host, Chris Okawa. My masked co-host is sitting this episode out because we wanted to streamline it and keep it really simple and clean uh, for the story that we have to tell. So note that, uh, as aforementioned in the previous episode, uh, this episode contains exceptionally mature content. Uh, racial slurs may be used in uh, the storytelling space uh, in order to illustrate uh, what our guest as a child uh, heard his father saying that how that sort of language, uh, you know, graded upon him and his upbringing and how it sort of followed him into uh, modern day and is a battle that he fights. Uh, our guest uh, also will not be using uh, the guise of anonymity. Um, he will be using his uh, proper first name. It's sort of a symbol that he's uh, unafraid of uh, the scrutiny uh, surrounding the issue. He is a Friend of mine, he is someone I would deem an anti-racist and a uh, great conversational activist. He's uh, he's always uh, sort of in the heart of of uh, issues uh, and sort of unpacking them and hearing all sides. So we're grateful for his uh, scrutiny and his scrupulousness and his courage to come on the show. So uh, welcome to the show, Cody. Hey guys, how's it going? <laughs> So uh, today's episode is uh, called Raised by Racism. We're going to unpack uh, a few vignettes from Cody's uh, childhood. He uh, reached out to us a few weeks ago uh, after having a very public falling out with his father, which we will get to at the end of the episode regarding his racism. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's just there's just no easy way to say it. So in that, the spirit of the episode is to is sort of human interest in that we are looking back into a, a friend's uh, history. Uh, he had requested, uh, you know, the opportunity to come forth and say something during this important time. And we wanted to uh, uh, toss in the platform. Um, so uh, yeah, Cody, uh, the floor is yours. Where would you like to begin? Can you give us a little bit of setup as to who your father was or who you knew your father to be as a child and, and where you, he, you, your story began with him? Um, well, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I grew up in a very, very small town in California. I don't know, less than a hundred people lived in it. And we had about three neighbors around us and about two acres apart. So we didn't really have like, um, that, you know, that neighborhood community feel. It was just kind of like, Hey, there's that neighbor and that neighbor and that neighbor and that's it. Um, so there was a, there was a feeling of isolation, uh, growing up, but you know, I traveled a lot due to my dad's profession, which I don't want to bring up because, uh, I want this to be about like, what is like growing up. I don't want, uh, him to get ostracized, lose his job, anything like that. Uh, He's already been punished enough by me cutting him out of his life. 
of my life. So I didn't kill him. <laughs> Cutting him out of his life. I didn't cut him. He has been punished enough life. by my knife. My life. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I promised I know, myself I, I wouldn't joke, but I couldn't hold back. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's, that was my, that was my little uh, mess up there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, we were isolated a lot. And where I grew up, you know, it was a majority white um, community. And, you know, it never really came up because, you know, no one was there that could, you know, challenge those ideas, you know. And, you know, there are there, there are plenty of things with him that were very problematic uh, growing up. He was very abusive uh, physically, um, verbally, emotionally. Uh, he's very a manipulative person. And so racism was just kind of just like another feature, you know, it just kind of felt like it was going to show up no matter what. But, you know, it was weird to grow up or at least look back at my growing up because like, I, you know, I've had conversations with like my, my mother and my sister and like my other friends too, where I was like, you guys don't really know what it's like growing up in that type of environment. Um, so yeah. So like what Chris said, uh, I will be saying the N word. I'm sorry. Um, so if anybody just want to hear it, I'm, I'm going to be bringing it up a lot. So that, so that was used a lot in my, in my dad's vernacular and it passed over to me. So for example, um, my, <laughs> my dad would use the term, uh, and that was a term for when you needed to fix something kind of haphazardly before you can fix it properly in the future. So it's like, okay, you know, you have some duct tape, maybe some electrical tape, you know, a clothespin, go do something. And looking back at that now, I'm just like, why didn't you say MacGyver it? Well, and also <laughs> the, <laughs> the modern, um, this sort of modern euphemism that a lot of people don't know about is it's called Jimmy rigging now. Um, and there's several, mm. there's several, uh, you know, pieces of modern vernacular that folks don't know have been euphemized or have uh, racist or white supremacist roots. And that's definitely a, a one of those colloquialisms. Right. And so, yeah, I grew up just kind of saying that around the house, like, oh, hey, this thing broke. So I'm going to go and rig it. Um, and, you know, for me, like, again, I didn't have anybody to challenge those ideas. It's coming from my father and my father says it with his friends. So it just seemed like that was accepted. Um. So that was like one of the things that we would, that was in my house a lot. Um, you know, the other thing that I was, I was taught as a child was something called flipping, which was when you drank a Coke or any type of bottled drink, if you put your whole mouth on it and you put your lips around the whole opening, that was called flipping it. Wow. And he would, he would smack me if I did it because one, it's not sanitary to put your mouth all over it. And two, he just, he always used that term. And, you know, of course, it's because they have big lips and, you know, they can't help themselves and you can. Was sort of and the, was, that was the justification he would give you. Yeah. And, and so, so these are like, these are sort of everyday phrases that he were sort of worked in. This is a kind of an, a pervasive atmosphere of racism. Would you say every day you heard him say the N word or do you think? A good amount. I would, I would, I at least heard it. Oh, every week. Yeah. You know, it, it was, it was something that was just there. It was just common. 
Um, you know, uh, one of the worst ones, which I suppressed until, um, until my sister reminded me and it just kind of came flooding back. Um, you know, the only time, like, like the time I really had fun with him and it's sad because it's with his connotation was we would play, um, an old PGA tour golf game on the Sega Genesis. And there's a mode in that game called skins where you, you know, if you beat somebody in a hole, you know, you make a birdie, they make a par, you're getting money. Like you've, you beat them in that hole, you play the 18 rounds, and whoever has the most wins gets money. Uh, that, that type of game in my household was called the round. And the consequence is if you lost, you had to do all the chores for the day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you had to do the dishes, you had to clean up, you know, dog shit. Um, you know, but that was the consequence of that round that you pretty much were quote unquote, the slave for the day. You do what I tell you. And that's how we, that's what the name of the game was called. And that was one of the positive aspects of my childhood growing up because I was enjoying time with Tim. Um, and, and the, the thing that really worried me after that is because, you know, my childhood was really hard again. I was isolated. Um, but there was one year where I went to a new school in a different town and I thought that was kind of, and I, I was gone for a, like a semester. I came back and my, my friends had kind of moved on, you know, like, mm -hmm. Hey, you were gone for four months and we made friendships. Yeah. So eh, you weren't here. And I had always assumed it was because I was gone, but I know around that time, my friends would come over and we would play that game because we had, I had the Sega Genesis. So I'm like, like I can't say this for, for certain or not, but I'm like, did I ever use that term with my friends? Like, Hey, we're going to play around. Yeah. And then they go and they tell their parents, Hey, what did you do? And they're like, yeah, we played the around on golf. And, and then they're like, Oh fuck. What? Yeah. And they're like, yeah, maybe you should hang out with that kid anymore. Yeah, I'm sure. You know? So it's like, I, that's me speculating, but that's not, that's not outside the realm of possibility, you know? Yeah. Well, I have two questions at this point. But, Is there, yeah. Did you have a relationship with your father's parents? Like were your paternal grandparents in the picture at this time? Um, my, my grandfather on his side, we, again, we were isolated a lot and we only saw him a couple of times because he, he, he passed away when I was, oh, I don't know, maybe seven, maybe six. It was, it was, I was young and the circumstances around his death were also really weird. So it's like, you know, that whole, like, that time with him, I just don't really, I don't really remember as much. I just remember him, but I don't remember him as a person. So you don't have a lot of insight as to where your father may have picked up these really caustic uh, patterns. Based from what my mom says is that she, she doesn't think she does. She would not expect it to come from him. Wow. So the, the one thing that whenever I talked to my, like when like the Philando Castile shooting happened or, uh, there was a guy that was, I can't remember his name. Uh, there was a guy that was shot by a police officer. Like he was in his car at like the university of Cincinnati or some shit yeah. like that. And, you know, yeah, I think you might've seen the video. It just became excessive force for no fucking reason. 
And I was like trying to talk to my dad about stuff like this. And, you know, when he gets upset, he, he's a very prideful person. And if you criticize him or you challenge him on his ideals, he'll, he'll shut down. He'll say something and he'll just, he'll just leave. He just walks away from it. And in this instance, it was a uh, hanging up the phone, but every single time we talk about race, he usually has the conversation or brings up, you know, well, if you want, when a n- puts a gun in your face, then you'll think differently. And so he keeps bringing up that he was robbed or something at some point in his life. And that has justified his, his racism for his whole life. And so, yeah, it's just, he got robbed. They happen to be black. So, and to my understanding, all black, all black people suck. To my understanding, he was, uh, was he a trucker at the time? Is that his profession? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Uh, at the time, yeah, he was, he was a truck driver and it was, uh, not too, it was not too long after the whole Rodney King, uh, protests. Mm-hmm. And so based off of what he's saying is that during that time he was driving his truck through and he got robbed. And so that's, that's his justification. But, you know, it's, uh, we'll talk about it later, but you know, I grew up with mostly white people, even when I moved, uh, after, after my parents separated, but you know, I've been in fights with white people when I was growing up and I've had some vicious brawls. That doesn't mean I'm going to hate all white people forever. So it's it's just, it's just an ignorant, narrow minded mindset. Yeah. And so did he move with you? Cause I know, uh, unfortunately your parents split up, but, but did you move, uh, apart from him at that point or did you, did he move with you? Yeah. 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 His, his job, um, his job, his, his, primary job he travels a lot so when when they separated i went to live with my grandparents and um he stayed at that house but then he ended up uh moving and i think he moved to like oregon or some shit but you know during the whole proceeding of um like custody and stuff we were you know my sister and i both are just like we don't want to live with him you know we hope that my mom gets custody because at least we'll have our grandparents to be able to help us out when we need it. Yeah. You know, that was our, that was our backup plan was that we were going to be living with our grandparents who had, you know, rooms for us. So, you know, we didn't want to live with him because not just the racist stuff, there was a lot of abuse, a lot of physical abuse that we had to endure. Yeah. That's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. And, and again, the theme of isolation sort of recurs uh, in this narrative. And you reached out to us after talking to your sister most recently. Were there some stories or, or feelings or moments that were stirred up in that conversation? Because I know that you reached out, I, to my understanding, just very shortly after the conversation was like, if you have you know an open slot, I think that I have something to say uh, as to the history of, of my yeah. childhood. Yeah, invite us into a few more of those stories because uh, they are quite arresting uh, and and uh, you know I, unfortunately to me uh, as a black man in, in America not extremely shocking um, but I do believe that there are people out there that don't understand that this is a regular and insidious disease racism is a disease white supremacy is a disease and it is a learned principle that you teach 
children at a young age. By age three or age four, they formed implicit biases, racial biases, profiles in their mind, a shorthand of how they interact with the world. Don't get in the car with someone that has candy, then turns into don't trust black people or maybe a right. Middle Eastern people steal, you know, like these different insidious, right. hateful, hateful prejudices that then people just calcify around and, and, and sort of march forward in, in a similar profile to how you've described your father. Well, yeah. And it's like, you know, I'll get to a story in a second, but it's like, you know, if you're, if you're kind of uh, told even in like a passive form, you know, like, Hey, uh, you know, Mexicans are, they'll steal from you or they'll, you know, black people are going to break into your car to like, you know, you know, any type of shit like that. And if you don't have any exposure to any of those other like races, like, you know, let's, let's say I (laughs) met like 10, 10 black people in my life you know, that are when I'm that age, I'm in like that very vulnerable, impressionable stage. And like two of them, like fucking beat me up or something like that's going to inform me for the rest of my life because I've always heard, oh, hey, you know, these people kind of suck. And then I get two and I'm like, oh, okay, well, yeah, it's true. And I'll just negate the other eight that were either positive or just nothing and different, you know? Yeah, like a child's engagement with law of numbers. Like, well, this percentage of people beat me up. There's 7 billion people in the world. I'm not great with percent- with doing percentages of minority demographics per country in that let's just say right. two, 2 billion people in the world or 2 trillion people in the world hate me. Right. And it's like, you know, and I hate to make the analogy because it's animalistic and I don't want to have that racial stereotype happen. But it's like you see that happen with kids. Like if a cat or a dog attacks them or they see a spider for the first time, (laughs) they're like, I don't know what that is. Like they they're going to form fears based off of that animal because they had a bad experience with it. It's the same thing. Like we like, you know, cause yes, we are animals too. So if we learn these, this behavior and we don't have somebody there that can like, you dispel know, it. Res- yeah. Responsibly dispel it and not add to that fuel, you know? So one of the stories that my sister brought up, uh, she had a friend uh, named her family was black and you know, my, and I don't remember this fully. This is mostly my sister's story. So, um, but had, um, she had a birthday party and they had some, they had some land and they had some horses and my sister loves horses and she was friends with them. So my sister is invited to this birthday party. Mind you, again, we're isolated. We don't really get to see, people, you know, uh, very controlling. And when my sister came back from that party and my dad found out, uh, he got really upset and we were like confused why. And and my sister told me this that he had said that um his father um has been sexually molesting her for a while because that's what mothers do. And my sister never really hung out with her up until we moved, you know. So it's that's just kind of the shit that some people you know, are, are being like taught and they're growing up in it. And, you know, you're also a child, you know, if your father or mother or whatever, whoever your guardian is, and they have a bias towards another people or just even a hatred, they're not going to give you the benefit to change that mindset from them because you're a child. You're anything that you do is kind of 
under their control, you know? So that's, that's just kind of one of the things. If you're, if, if your family member is racist and you're not, you're most likely going to end up that way because you're not going to get the same opportunities to combat that idea. Yeah. Well, and, and if you stay in isolation, I mean, uh, Samuel Clemens or uh, we give him a hard tone here. Mark Twain uh, said, you know, yeah. travel is the death of racism. You know, the idea that once you encounter another right. culture face to face, another person face to face, could turn that into a friendship. You are going to you cannot hold uh, them to an idea that you annihilate the idea and they step into the limelight of being a person, an entity in your life, a de- complex human being just as complex if not more so than you are in the case of folks that stay in isolation their whole lives and and refuse to give up their beliefs well i actually have a story uh from that same region of california um but we're going to turn the clock back um a good maybe 50 years to where our, our story begins today and this goes to my um my adoptive uh side of my family is japanese like i said it's uh it's one of the primary mm-hmm. cultures i've ever known uh, i loved my grandparents dearly my uh my grand my grandfather uh on the japanese side uh was in mountain view california in uh the early 1940s uh with his uh they were he was a first generation japanese american um and they were farmers out there in Mountain View, they had the, the same situation of, of isolation that you've described. Uh, he said, my nearest neighbors were, you know, 10, 15 miles, 20 miles out. And I didn't have a car, you know. My dad had this old Ford because, you know, again, this is the early 40s. And so... Um, right. you know, they're farmers, they're, they're working hard, they're, they're living the, you know, supposed American dream at the time. And, uh, then, uh, Pearl Harbor happens. And as coastal Japanese, they are rounded up, uh, not too unlike, uh, what the Germans did to the Jews and put them into concentration right. camp. And he served his concentration camp time in Heart Mountain concentration camp, um, where, you know, they ended up, the Japanese ended up creating a whole community there. They had a fire department, a baseball team, a garden, you know, a gardening club, and they just made the best of it. But we imprisoned our own citizens, our own legal American citizens. And the kicker of the story is he had a neighbor come from 20 miles down the road that knew that they, they were about to be, you know, sort of rounded up and their their farm would go untended and their land would go uh, unprotected and unowned for X amount of time. No one knew how long the war was going to take. And he sold he, he said, I'm going to buy your Ford off of you for one dollar. And uh, wow, he said, yeah. be, he said, I, you can either get a dollar from me or you can get nothing and I'll take it anyway when they take you away. And this was in Mountain View, California, USA, you know. In the, in the 1940s. Right. And, and so this is right. a, there is actually a rich tradition of, you know, isolatory racism uh, in that region of America. And a lot of people think that California is like, oh, this sort of like city of stars, sort of a, a land of progressivism. I myself grew up in San Jose, where uh, just last week, uh, the police shot their uh, their de-escalation negotiator of five years, they shot him and disfigured him using rubber bullets uh, during a, a protest, a peaceful protest procedure. So even there's no place in California that is even free of of this 
insidious sickness of of racism and white white supremacy. It is all over our fine country, our, our all over yeah. our country. I, I I'm I am remiss to call it a fine country. It it is an embarrassment to the world right now. Yeah, yeah, and really weird tangent. Uh, I don't know when you lived in San Jose, but yeah, we we didn't live too far away from each other at one point, maybe. Yeah, which is crazy. Very likely. Um. <laughs> But yeah, no, I mean, it's true. I mean, like when, when the whole election was happening and there was the whole Muslim ban that first was happening, like in 2015, when it was just kind of like, oh, we should put them on a database, you know, and people are like, oh, that's never going to happen. We have the constitution. It's like, we've had the same fucking constitution that we've had forever. And look what happened to black people in slavery. Look what happened to the, the Japanese in the forties. Like our constitution doesn't fucking matter. We will become authoritarian, totalitarian state when we fucking want to. And that's the problem is that our constitution does not protect us from that happening. That's why I always say when I hear like, you know, any type of politics where it's like, oh, well, you know, there's the communists and they're going to do this and blah, blah, blah. It's like authoritarianism does not have a line on the spectrum. And and it doesn't have a party line. It doesn't come in a predictable package. Um, it's insidious. It's insidious, right. like the very uh, disease of the mind that is racism that fuels it. Um, as Dr. King says uh, in his great speech, The Other America, the end game of racism is always genocide. And you can check any history book that is entirely true. And, you know, we yeah. are are seeing a... Uh, a lesser replication of it in the streets of our country. There's two very distinct sides uh, to this battle, uh, both in litigation and on Capitol Hill, as well as, you know, in our, in the streets of our, every city in this country. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do want to point out that I know that it's probably, there might be people in Arizona that might be listening to this. And when, when Chris says uh, King, he doesn't mean Burger King or the mattress King. Uh, he means Martin Luther King. Yes. Uh, you guys probably don't know that because it took you a while to celebrate his fucking birthday six, or his, six years. Celebrate his fucking day. Six years. It I, was, I, it was canceled for six years in Arizona, Arizona. Don't you forget it. And don't let Doug uh, Douchey let you I, forget it. When I moved from California to Arizona, it's during, it was during the time that they were like, Hey, we're not, we don't celebrate it. And I remember going like, Oh yeah, I'm okay. Day's coming up. And they were like, what do you mean? And I'm like, what the fuck did I walk into? <laughs> like, Imagine my crazy. surprise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Your surprise is even worse. So, uh, but yeah. So as you, was your, where was your mother in all of these, these narratives? Did they live separately at, for a lot of these stories or was she, was she present? So she was around, but she, she unfortunately was, you know, a huge victim to everything. Um, what a lot of, you know, what you'll see with a lot of people that, you know, are abusive and manipulative is, you know, they will tear somebody down. They were, they will tear down somebody's worth and that gives them nowhere to go because if I'm not loved or if, if this is who loves me, how do I expect somebody to treat me better from a stranger? or somebody who might not even care about me. Um, you know, my dad and I, you know, I was a kid, but I, sh- I wish I would have known better, but you know, he would make fun of my mother's weight a lot. And me and my sister ended up joining in because that was the only time that it was like, you know, 
we're a family poking at each other, but it was really harmful. Um, and, you know, you just, as a kid, it's hard to, you know, see, see the differences between having fun and hurting somebody when it comes to like, you know, making jabs at somebody, you know, but she was, she was physically, um, abused. She was very much abused emotionally and verbally. So she's repressed a lot of the stuff that's happened. She, I never heard her say any of the racist slurs. Um, she may have every now and then, but she never, she never was, I never got the views that I had, that I had, you know, from my dad, from her. She, yeah, she, she, she was not participating in a way where she influenced that part of my upbringing. Yeah. So after the custody battle, after the, after the move, um, and you started to grow up as you started to become a young man, you're, you're going up through junior high, you're going up through high school in Arizona, to my understanding, uh, which is very shortly before we met. Um, you, did you see an evolution in your relationship with your father? Or was he pretty much business as usual, uh, on all fronts? Um, so after, after the custody, uh, battle happened, um, he was gone a lot. Like I didn't see him for a long, for like long periods of time. Um, because one, he was busy doing his job and two, I was busy actually enjoying my life. I was, you know, making friends, which was very hard for me to do, you know, um, because when I was growing up, I wasn't allowed to have friends over on the weekends because I had to either help the family out doing stuff. And I couldn't have, um, I couldn't have friends over during the weekdays because, uh, that was either, you know, my dad would be coming home late from work and he didn't want to deal with, you know, any other kid, let alone his own kids. So it was always like a nuisance to, for me to have anybody over. And, you know, if he found out about it, he would get upset. Um, cause again, he needed to make his world, his world. So then we wouldn't see anything outside of it. So then we would be like, yeah, why are we still doing this? We should get the hell out of here. Um, but you know, I ended up, you know, making friends like from middle school on, uh, you know, I, 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 I did more, um, activities after school, whether it was like joining the golf club or just playing actual sports or going to friends' houses after school and just not having to worry about anything. So it, I didn't really feel like I had a, a proper childhood until, until sixth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I always, I always kind of had to, I had to grow up a, a bit faster uh, than a lot of people. And so like, I never really had a childhood, but I had like an adolescence. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And, uh, one of the therapeutical terms, um, for that is parentage, uh, where a parent, uh, or circumstances or trauma sort of thrust a child into a parent's role or an adult role prematurely. And that, of course, has, you know, psychological repercussions on the back end. Um, yeah. I mean, of course. And uh, you mentioned, so in years later, as you continued to put distance and track between you and your father uh, and sort of his domain and his influence, um, are there any other sort of childhood memories that you'd like to re- recount or, or can I proceed into sort of the young adult years? 
Um, I think we can go into the young adult years. I think at this point. Yeah. Because yeah, I don't don't really have much. Because most mo- like most of my childhood was, um, well, yeah. I mean, I guess also, I guess we can talk about uh, some of this stuff because it still happened throughout. Because it took me a while to kind of realize. But you know, I, I most of my joke vocabulary as I was growing up were mostly racist jokes. Hmm. You know, and I've heard I've. I've heard almost every single racist joke that you can throw at people. Um, and some of them were just very hard um, to like stomach the fact that I would say these and I would get enjoyment out of them because I would hear, you know, Hey, you know, these people are laughing at the jokes that are being said, you know, they're adults and they're in my dad's circle. And so I'm like, Oh yeah, well, if these, if these people are laughing, then surely my friends would laugh at these jokes because it's universal. Right. Yeah. And again, like not knowing how that would affect my life, you know, growing up, but you know, um, like some of them, you know, I mean, it's up to you. I can tell you some of the ones that I've heard to hear some of the horrors of what people fucking talk about, but I, I would skip them too. If you don't want to talk about them. Yeah. We can let sleeping dogs lie there and leave it to sort yeah. of the theater of the mind because I don't want to give the jokes and that sort of ideology a platform uh, because you know, yeah, yeah, I don't want anyone else to know these jokes. You know, what I mean, I don't want to true tell these jokes any. I don't think we should tell these jokes right. anymore. I can, I can, I, can I tell one though? Can I tell one, Chris? All right, trust me. All right, tell me one. You, you trust me, right? I trust right. you. Tell me one. All right, all right, okay. What do you call a black guy flying a plane? What? A race, a fucking pilot, you racist motherfucker. <laughs> okay, I like, <laughs> I like, a, I like it. I think a racist joke that's uh, anti joke is an anti racist joke, so that's pretty cool. But uh, I just, I just <laughs> blanch at the thought of what other people would say beyond what. But uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh, yeah. I'm sure you've heard your fair share. So as you as you continue to distance yourself from your father. Um, you you mentioned you sort of had the echo effects, like mentally you would think about it affected the way you thought about people, affected the way that you your knee jerk responses to situations. It affected sort of your rhetoric when discussing things with people. Can you invite us into that? Yeah. So like, again, like growing up, I did not understand really because again, I was naive. Like, I don't think I ever grew up like hating per se. I just saw it as acceptance. You know, hey, this is what they call them. This is what people like. This is the name for them. And I didn't really realize that it was really negative until I want to see either my seventh or eighth grade year, because there were two kids, uh, twin brothers in my English class, and they were really nice guys. And I had fun with them. I really liked them. And you know, they would always call them, you know, you know, they would call themselves, you know, I'm not going to say it anymore. Um and I remember I just asked, I was like, I was friends with them. I was like, Hey, like I can call you that too. Right. And they were like, ah, sure. Like, why not? And I was like, cool. And <laughs> I, one of them, uh, would draw, would ride a moped to school. And I remember one day I was walking down the street and I see him coming down the street on his moped. And so I was like, Oh shit. And so I was just like, Hey, what's up, man? And and then the guy stopped and it wasn't him. Oh. And so I, I see him and then the guy is like pissed, obviously. And he starts chasing me on the moped. And so I had to like run away from the guy 
Um, I had to like, like hop people's fences and I had to like run through fucking people's yards and backyards and, and just had to lose the guy. Um, but then I was just like, why, why, why did he chase me? Like, what? I, I don't get it. And then I told my friend, I was like, Hey, I thought I saw you yesterday. And then I, you know, I was like, I said it. And then the guy chased me and he just told me, he was like, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't have let you say that. You can call me that because it's not cool. And that was the first time when I was just like, oh, wait, there's a bad connotation to this word. Yeah. And I don't, and I didn't get it until I was 12, 13 years old. Um, you know, and then from then on out, I was like, I'm not going to say this anymore, but, um, but I, I would be remiss to say that, you know, up until, you know, probably sometime this year that, you know, if a black guy happens to, you know, cut me off and, you know, if I'm like crossing the street and a car comes at me and almost hits me and the guy happens to be black behind the wheel. Yeah. I've said it in my head and it's because, you know, I, I grew up in that way and it was, it's a, it's a thing that people do out of fear and anger to try to take their power back in that moment. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, this person who I feel is irresponsible and almost hurt me. Well, I can take power back because I can say something that, you know, is demeaning. So like I grew up in a very naive world thinking that that was what you call them. And then I heard the negative connotation and then it made me think about all the times that I heard my dad say it towards black people in a negative connotation. And then I realized like, this is how he said it, but I wasn't also mature enough to also go, well, I should never do that, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't be, I can't, I'm not trying to be a freaking saint and be like, oh yeah, I've never had these thoughts before and I grew out of it. No, I still have them to like this, to this day for the most part. And it's something that sucks. But the one thing that I can, I can distinguish between myself and my dad is that if I say it, I feel ashamed about it and just want to work on it to like, to get rid of it, you know, to eradicate it. Yeah. To cure it. But, but yeah, so I mean, you know, if anybody's been a fan of me until now, I don't, yeah, yeah you got, you don't be a fan of me because I'm speaking out against people that are racist. Like I still have those thoughts and I grew up in it and it's been a hard, 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 hard time trying to like be, be different than that. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned it having a negative effect on both you and, and from your other story, your sister's friendships and relationships do you do you see that uh i mean now you're in a relationship and now you're much older do you find that something you have to reconcile within your relationships even telling those stories is it hard to tell those stories of where you came from and and who your father who's still alive and is still uh up until this past week which we'll get to uh shortly here was was a part of your life even remotely um, is, is that, a, yeah, was that a hard thing to reconcile for your adult relationships? Yeah. I mean, you know, luckily I've, 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 you know, <laughs> I've had friends who are black that I've been really good friends with and that, you know, I'm able to surround myself with people who like, I legit think are great people. And that also just helps, you know, alleviate any of those awful thoughts that happen in your mind, you know, um, once you're exposed to people who are just fucking people, like 
it's easy to go like, oh yeah, why the fuck do I have these bad thoughts? Because, you know, I would never say that about, you know, one of my friends that I met at Barnes and Noble. If he ever cut me off in traffic, I would never, I would hope that I would never call him that. You know, if you did something to me, I would hope I would never call you that, you know? And so it's like, they're, so it's, 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 it's interesting because, you know, there, there is a lot of shame with the mindset but at least I have like, you know, with my girlfriend, she's very understanding of how, of how I do not want to become my father so much that she's able to have like, listen to me when I say things. And when I talk about it, she knows that I'm trying to, I guess in a way, exercise some type of demon. And she just knows that this is like, this is healthier. Um, but there are some things that, you know, were really hard. Like, I mean, I didn't really talk about any of this stuff until like this year, because like one, I'm kind of a private person and two, it's just like, you know, you don't want people to like look at you and then just go like, okay, well, you're just going to be some other white guy that, you know, had these thoughts too. But that's why I wanted to not be anonymous this time because it's like, Hey guys, you know me. You know the type of person I am. Yes, I'm not perfect. Yes, I've done some awful shit before. But people can grow if they're able to. You know? Yeah. Like, and yeah. you know, there's there's some people that are never going to be able to grow out of it because they don't allow themselves to grow out of it. But there are people that can grow out of this. Like, you know. They can break the cycle. You can break the chain. Because all we can do is be better than what came before us. And you need to actively work on that. You just can't say like, oh, well, because, you know, I went to a protest, you know, and I was there and then, you know, I'm better now, you know, like you still have to actively do it. And then if some, like if your generation does something good, you know, they're still, they're doing something better than you, but they still need to be actively doing more to still counteract all this shit because I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but like we have America has like this really weird mindset, especially when it comes to the black community. I'm like, yes, anybody that's like Asian, middle Eastern Latino, you guys have been oppressed too, but there's this, I think there's like a really, there's, there's a much more interesting mindset that America has towards the black community. And I'm not saying that means you're oppressed more. I don't care about that shit. But like, for example, I think America tries to give the moniker, at least in the mindset to the black community, as if they themselves were immigrants. Yeah, that that we sense? were not stolen from our countries. Yes. Right. Like, you know, if there's, you know, like like this generation now, you know, like they're going to be like, oh, look at these kids that are looting. Well, they're like, you know, their ancestors worked for a better life and like they're here, they should be trying to reap the benefits of America. And it's like, well, that their that, that person's ancestors didn't come over here willingly to like make a better life and to live the American dream. They were stolen and they had to work to survive. And a lot of them didn't. And a lot of them were sold. And a lot of them were families ripped apart. And it's like, yeah, so we try to give that moniker of like, you know, we try to treat the black community as if their whole lineage were immigrants that came over to look for a better life. And so when we see people that aren't su- uh, succeeding or excelling at life, that we go, oh, well, they're just, you know, giving up 
you know, and they're not working hard because, you know, right. they should be trying to work hard. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's also a poor white sort of aphorism. Um, I remember I was in a conversation with um, someone uh, earlier this year about the unemployment uh, $600 surplus. And they said, right. I'm concerned. I'm concerned that people are going to get used to this $600 surplus. First fallacy, the surplus is not approved to move past July 31st, in case anyone in your life's right. lying to you about that. And the second thing is that they'll be too incentivized with this living wage that they're not interested in returning to the labor force. And that is, to me, pointing to, uh, you know, the illness itself that was exposed by this actual physical ailment of coronavirus in that Americans believe that if you work hard in this country, you will be successful. And that is a lie. That is a lie. That is a lie and has never been true for black folk. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about systemic racism. The system has been stacked against us since we were stolen from our homes in Africa, you know, some like fucking 500 years ago. So yeah. Yeah, and it's it, it's things like, you know, even with that, like just like a quick tangent, just about that whole six hundred dollars extra for unemployment. Like I moved when I moved out here, you know, I had no money really to my name. I only had enough money to get an apartment and I transferred with Barnes and Noble at the time. And I was, you know, again, I'm a naive person. You know, I think that the world is better than what it is. But, you know, I was like, oh, OK, I'll be I'll, it'll be New York City and it's the biggest store. Uh, in New York City for for this company. And, you know, I was making $8.50 while I was at, you know, when I was in Tucson. So I'm like, okay, uh, they'll probably bump me up a bit. And they only bumped me up to $9 an hour. Oh my God. Oh my and God. This is, you know, New York City. And so base unemployment in New York City is $380 if you don't have to, if you don't work the whole five days um, that they offer for unemployment. I was making $360 a week working, working 40 a 40 hours. hour a week job at a, at a, at a big company. And if I would have got fired from that job, I would make $20 more a week from unemployment. Like that's just a failing of the systems in general. Yeah. I, uh, they, we just don't pay people enough money to freaking live. And I think that's uh, one of our biggest, you know, one of the, what has now become a large pile of major issues in our country that we were now we've been sort of uh, our hands have been pressed to the fiery braille alphabet in the words of Tennessee Williams. We cannot look away any longer about the wage disparity. We can no longer look away from systemic racism. We can no longer accept a police that are better trained to raid a foreign village than to walk a kid across the street or talk someone down that's panicking and holding a potential weapon or to pull someone over and tell them they're driving too fucking fast and they have their kid in the seat next to them you know the we need change now no justice no peace and so in a epilogue to tonight's sort of uncharacteristically fiery which i will not apologize for but very important episode can you invite us into the circumstances and the story behind you cutting ties with your father uh this time last week yeah so um i just put out a, you know i i, I, just, I was you know i i really just kind of went into the rabbit hole of looking at what was happening to the protests. And yeah, it sucks that uh, rioting and looting happened, but to be honest, you know, if you, if you tell me like, you know, in my life, it's like, Hey, 
you should be taking a left at the street. And when I take a left, somebody's there to slap me. And then I go back to the, like my original starting point. I go, Oh, sorry, you should have turned right. And then I turn right. And then somebody slaps me again. Like, am I going to be peaceful after this? Like you're telling me all these things. And you're just, you're just giving me dead ends. Like, I'm sorry. Like there's a boiling point for every person. Yeah. Some people are going to take advantage of a situation, but you know, I was seeing all the destruction that was happening at these protests, but not because of the rioting and looting. It's because of the cops just escalating the situation. Like, you can't tell me that it's fine for a country that was going through a pandemic that we were like, oh, well, we can't get you ventilators. We can't get you freaking PPE, but we can definitely make sure our citizens don't want to protest because we're going to give cops rubber bullets. We're going to give them tanks. We're going to give them fr- uh, freaking tear uh, gas that's illegal know, by the Geneva Convention. Yeah, tear gas and fucking flashbangs, you know, like, so that's where our priorities lie as a country. Um, But I was seeing like a lot of the stuff and um, I, you know, I just put a whole list of like, this is what I've seen. This is what I saw. 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 And then, you know, they responded with like, do you have any proof of this? You know, is this just hearsay and, you know, very right wing talking points of like, well, the media doesn't like the police. And if the media is not talking about it, then it must not exist. Um, and then a couple of people that I know kind of chimed in and was like, hey, we'll we'll send you videos and we'll have a we'll have a discussion. And um, after a couple of hours, because I actually I actually cried a lot because I'm like, I still I can't I can't escape this. I can't escape just saying, hey, there's injustices. And then it's just like, well. Are there really injustices? You have to prove this to me. Um, And I started throwing some videos up and, you know, the response is pretty much like the the, the protesters had it coming pretty much because they're challenging the police officers. You know, there are a couple of videos that also hit me too. Like uh, there's one where a a guy that's a, a journalist or a cameraman, he's like holding up his press badge. He's face down on the ground and he's just saying, Hey, I'm press. Hey, I'm press. And then, um, he's just prone, not doing anything, not a threat to anybody. And a a police officer just looks like casually strolls by him and just pepper sprays him in the face, you know? And my dad's response to that was, well, I don't believe that he's press, but I'm like, yeah, but he's not a threat to anybody. He's listening to orders. He's complying. He's doing everything that you racist motherfuckers say about black people. If you would just comply, you're not going to get hurt. This guy did exactly what he was told and he still got pepper sprayed in the face. Like you're not looking at the big picture here that we've been saying police use excessive force too much. It's called excessive for a reason. (laughs) Yeah, it's not. I was talking to someone about it. It's not a designation of an amount of force. It is situationally too much force and an inappropriate amount of force to the situation. It's not. Oh, well, even honestly, um, I'll fucking say it. So Mayor de Blasio fucking went on uh, cam last week, I think, and gave a press conference. And someone asked, like, how do you feel about the excessive use of force by the police? And he said, in some situations, I deem excessive force necessary because lives are on the line. He misused and misunderstood and misinterpreted what excessive force means by definition. Excessive force, by definition, can never be appropriate because it's excessive force. If it's an appropriate amount of force, then it's just called tactics. But he's saying that he (laughs) signs off. Our mayor, our elected mayor, unfortunately, vote him out, said that... uh, 
said that excessive force was was appropriate in, in cases that were exigent. And that that's that, that it totally begs the question. It's it's completely it's completely astroturfing the argument and, and, and very inappropriate as the mayor of what I used to deem one of the greatest cities of this country. It's very, very and disappointing. And also, I'm not, I'm not trying to, like, hold any water for, the, for him, but it's like we've we saw, like how he was viewed by the police in general years ago. I think, I think when, I think Obama was still like, I I don't know how he's, how long he's been in office here, but it's like, you know, he was always like, Oh, de Blasio doesn't like the police. And now it looks like he's trying to like change tactic to be like, well, I'm fine with the police. Like it's just a very political move. You know, it's very like, Oh, I'm fine with the police. So I, I, I have to, it's the same thing that fucking Clinton did in 1994, you know, Democrats moved to the right because of the whole crime situation that was happening. I'm putting quote, uh, crime in quotes, but you know, you, you see it a lot. You see like the whole idea, you know, people are trying to put out like George Floyd's like rap sheet. And if the rap sheet is true or whatever, I'm just going to look at the logic of the situation. You know, I think there were like three consecutive arrests that he served time. He for. served his time. But, but here's the thing. Three of those consecutive arrests that I think he got about almost a year for each one was for possession or use of cocaine. And so it's like, that's also the problem. Why do we send police to go after people that are on drugs? Why don't we send some type of addiction specialist, some type social of social worker, you know, someone that some type of social a worker, engagement a healthcare person, person. a healthcare exactly. person for Christ's sake. I was reading something today uh, that it was nurses put out a statement. A nurse put out a statement and said, we restrain people that are violent on drugs, you know, holding weapons, concealed weapons, belligerent every day. And we don't have to stand on any of their windpipes to do so. And that is right, so exactly. incredibly powerful. We just have to pivot our mindset as to how to deal with these problems. We have to get more creative and we definitely have to fucking defund the police. But it's not even just defunding. It's, you know, because I've got to meet a lot of great people here in New York and I come from all over the place. You know, I, I met a girl that's from Norway. And if you look at if you look at Norway, they have a population of like 5.4 million people and they have about 4,000 people in jail. But the way that they treat their prisoners is that they actually give them like apartments. There's like, an, I, I think it's called like Halsey, I think it is, but they actually give them apartments where it's like a studio apartment with a bed. They have like a common room to eat. Um, and they actually teach them like vocational skills. Like there's an island. One of the prisons is like run like a small island of apartments. And each person there is being trained to be an electrician, a plumber, um, a carpenter, upholstery like all these type of trade skills and then when they go when they get back out into the into the world they have a skill where they can start a job or become an apprentice with somebody or get into another day be like oh yeah i've done this and look what we do to prisoners we make them do slave labor because that's the 13th amendment and we also like you know there's the firefighters in california a few years ago where they used prison labor to fight fires but when they get out of jail they cannot become a firefighter and it's like, why do you do that to people? Like you're, you're setting people up to fail. You're setting people up to be, you know, the recidivism, uh, I'm repeat not offenders. The yeah. The repeat offenders is going to be so much higher because we, we actively tell businesses like, Hey, this person committed a crime. So maybe you don't want to hire them. It's like, we set up these people to fail. So like, we need to look at that shit. We need to defund the police and put that money towards community engagement. Better programs. Yeah. Community engagement. Like, 
you know, you, know, you don't need a cop to come and uh, stop a noise complaint. We don't need a cop to come and, you know, try to talk somebody down that's on drugs. We don't need to, you know, have a cop show up to, um, you know, have, like somebody that's having like a suicidal thought. You know, there was a story that happened uh, not too long ago where it was a kid that called the cops because he was worried for his own self-being because he was having suicidal thoughts. And the cops showed up, the kid was holding a knife, they didn't try to de-escalate the situation, and they shot him dead. So a kid called the cops so because he was worried that he was going to kill himself. And what did the cops do? They killed him. So they just let, they, they were like, oh, why did you even show up then? Why did you show up? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we, we haven't even finished. Um, yeah, finish the tale. my dad. Yeah, finish the tale of your father, and and this is a part uh, that I actually haven't heard of the narrative. Right. So, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so I put this thing up, and he responds. People are responding to him. People are being very generous. They're just trying to to educate. And he doesn't really want to hear it. He always goes to, you know, well, you know, do you condone the people that are rioting and looting? Do you care about that? Um... And he always like he was always deflecting the situation, and I barely, I barely uh, chimed in because I was like, I don't really need to chime in against him. But there were a couple of times I did. He attacked one of my friends, and I was like, Hey, she's a really nice person, and he was like, Well, she's not being nice to me. Blah 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 blah. blah. Uh, he put a couple of like little screenshots of people that are, I think, idiots, um, and be like, This is how they talk about the left, you know, saying that. Like, you know, the left wants to get rid of, um, you know, the left treats, treats Americans to hate their country. It teaches uh, women to hate their femininity and to hate their masculinity, all that bullshit, you know? And, and at one point he said something, a friend said something like, Hey, America's just, you know, going to change and you just don't like where it's going. So you just kind of have to suck it up. And he responded with like, well, socialism is just like another layer of slavery. And no one had brought up socialism this whole time. And so I just said, hey, nobody brought that up. Let's not make any straw man arguments here. And then he responded with, "Um, you can live your life. I'll live mine. There's no need to communicate anymore. uh, So goodbye. And I reacted to that because that's what I grew up with. It was a, a, a manipulation tactic of I'm going to punish you by leaving your life and you won't be able to function. And I called him out on it and said this should have happened 20 years ago. And then he responded worse. And and then finally, I was like, this is like, you know, even before this happened, the, this situation happened after I had first contacted you in the first place. So like, I want to talk about this stuff and I wanted to be anonymous but then all this happened. I was like, fuck it. I'm, people are going to know my name at least. I don't need to be anonymous. And I was like, I'm going to go scorched earth right now. I'm done. And he had brought up the whole, like, I've been robbed by black men before, all that stuff. And so I said, so based off your logic, like, I should hate white people. Because when I was younger, I watched a white man abuse a woman. And I tried to call the cops. And that person tried to stop me. When I came out of my hiding place to see if the woman was okay, that man was standing there with a shotgun in my face. And then I was like, that woman was my mom. That man was you. And I was in elementary school. 
and that was one of the one of the um i guess the incidents that happened in my life that really formed me if that makes sense where i saw that this man who was supposed to love me love his family was able to beat his wife and then when i went to try to call the cops which again defund he had a gun in my face and then it was all out there and i said you you can you can stop talking to me now i don't have any i don't have any room in my heart or in my life to have to be embarrassed by you like i don't want to like hey i'm gonna get married one day and here's my father that might say shit i don't want to have happen i don't want to be associated with this anymore so yeah if there's anybody out there that hears this that might have family members that are like this you don't need to sacrifice your mental your your mental health and your life just because somebody's a family member if somebody is truly toxic in your life for whatever reason cut them the fuck out and you will feel way better i never cried as hard as i did about a week ago and i have been perfectly happy ever since i made that decision wow yeah it's a powerful conclusion to what has been a rocky road for you, my friend. And honestly, as a, as someone that met you, I think when I was like 16 years old, so it's been, or it's probably been at least a decade, over a decade since we've been friends. I would, I would never have expected this origin story to, uh, ha- or this ghost to have been sort of following you uh, this whole time, as I've always known you to be very pro- uh, progressive and considerate of other people. Um, and in this case, uh, courageous in sharing your story. Uh, and I know, of course, and, and I know that we could go on and on about all of the, all of this shit in the air right now. Um, but I think to really, you know, uh, put a nice bookend and, and, and really highlight, uh, the human interest of this episode, I, I want to, I think that we should leave it there in that, uh, very, that very, uh, stark memory you invited us into. And I, I thank you for your candor. Um, folks out there listening, I know there wasn't as many yuck-em-ups this time around, but every bit as, as candid as the, as the principle of this show is, um, and giving people a platform to share their stories, uh, and us to share, uh, lesser heard tales. And, uh, this is certainly the first of its kind in this detail of someone that I know, a face that I know rather than from a, through a documentarian's lens. Uh, and, and it, and it just hits, it hits quite differently. So I thank you for sharing of your story with us today, Cody, uh, for your courage of, uh, foregoing the, uh, anonymity. And I, I know, uh, that this story, whether, uh, it educates folks about, um, the chain of abuse, uh, the echoes of abusive behavior in child's lifetimes or uh, has people start, you know, maybe puts a few new phrases into people's ears as to the defund the police movement or uh, what excessive force is and why it has no place uh, in America, uh, especially from an authoritarian uh, perspective and also uh, the dangers of sort of forming a, an outlook based on your traumas and based on things that were done ill to you. And on also things that you're told by fucking Tucker Carlson, shove it, Tucker, you little <laughs> piece of shit. So, yeah. um, uh, one, one yeah, of mind. course, um, if there, if there's anybody out there, any of the listeners 
and they want to talk to me. Um, I know that you guys probably reach out to Chris. You probably Instagram him or email him or whatever. And you guys do want to have a conversation with me about, you know, if you were abused as a child, if you grew up with like any type of racism in your family, if you want to talk about any of that stuff, you have, yeah, if, if it's fine with Chris, yeah, ask Chris and then we can, we can talk about it. I don't mind talking about that because it helps, it helps me. And it hopefully will help anybody else. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say is yes, Dijon, please abolish the 13th Amendment. You can reach us at Censorious Podcast on Instagram, Censorious uh, Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook.com slash Censorious Podcast or at Twitter at Censorious Pod. Um, we are now hosted by Anchor, as you heard in the opening spot. Uh, we love them. You can find us there at anchor.fm slash Censorious. Um, that's probably where you found this, um, in which case we love you. Everyone out there, you know, continue to be courageous, continue to push to find the facts and learn and unlearn and practice a better way than the generation before, as our guest so eloquently put it at the beginning. And, and just um, together we can, together we can. Uh, so everyone out there, coronavirus is still very much alive and well. Be sure to wash your hands and feet. We love you. We fear you. Good night.